Well, greetings, brethren, and welcome to Sabbath Services. We'll be live streaming from Burlington, Ontario. Just doing our weekly sound check before we get started. Hopefully you can hear my voice clearly. And you're also hearing the piano. So just looking for a sound check.
Okay, I am getting a confirmation that we are live on, on Facebook. We're not uh, broadcasting live on the cgi.churchonline.org. So um, hopefully the brethren that normally join us there are able to join us on Facebook at the Church of God International page. And uh, I believe we'll also be live on um, YouTube as well. But we do have quite a few people on uh, the Facebook page. Thanks for the confirmation there. I think uh, we will go ahead and get started, and hopefully uh, we will get a proper feed to the cgi.churchonline.org. Hello, hello. Welcome again here to the weekly broadcast from Burlington, uh, Burlington, Canada, Burlington, Ontario. And thank you so much for faithfully joining us week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath. It just feels like we become international family. If you're here for the first time, I hope that you will enjoy the message. You will join, we will enjoy everything that's, it's provided here for you. And hopefully we will become a part of this global international family. And today we are in the middle of, almost in the middle of July. We had a really, really hot week here in our place, here in Burlington, in our areas. It was interesting to see. I was checking some places in some other parts of North America. We actually had a hotter temperature than places like Tyler, Texas, or even some places like Panama City Beach, Florida. So it was really, really hot week. But this Sabbath brought a little bit of relief. It's a cloudy and a nice, comfortable weather to walk. So thank you for joining us again, and at this time, we'll have an opening prayer, and the opening prayer will be provided for us by Pastor Agent David. So please bow your head in respect. Our Heavenly Father, we pause before beginning our service. We want to acknowledge you. We want to thank you, God. We are living in tumultuous times. We're living in times that are very discouraging. A lot of people are falling into great anxiety and depression. And yet, Father, from your word, we can have great joy. And we also know, Father, that Christ exhorted us that we must endure unto the end and that as long as we abide in him and his words abide in us, that we will bear fruit and our fruit will remain. And so, Father, we just want to thank you so much for this opportunity, this specific opportunity that we have to gather and to have your word expounded to, to us through the inspiration that you've given to Pastor Murray. We pray, God, that you'll continue to inspire him uh, through the preparation that he's uh, done and now into the delivery of his message and that you'll inspire us, Father, and that we'll have a hunger and a thirst, not just to hear your word, but to do it. We thank you so much, Father, and bless all those who are tuning in live and those who might tune in and listen to the archive afterwards. Uh, have your word, Father, the words of Christ as well, abide in us. We praise you, we thank you, and we ask this blessing now in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Agent. Now we are blessed to have a hymn and, you know, blessed to have a sister Jennifer playing on piano. But before we go to a hymn, I would like you to have your Bible handy, because right after the opening hymn, we'll go to a scripture reading. I would like you to turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Verses 12 to 14. So now we'll have a hymn on page 32. The words will be projected on your screen entitled, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore You. And right after him, we'll go to the scripture reading, will be read to us by Brother Daniel. Good afternoon, brethren. The scripture reading this week is taken from 2 Corinthians verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours, in the day of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Brother Daniel. Now let's just go over to some of the announcements before we go to main message. We don't have many announcements, so we'll go quickly. Just please remember the weekly Bible studies that actually resume after two weeks based last, last week. And Pastor Agent continue in the book of Judges. So please join us on Wednesday at 7.30 Eastern Time. And please 
spread the message, pass to the other, who might not be interesting. It's a very fascinating book to study. It reflects exactly the church living in this lawlessness that we live in this time. And the other announcements here, just please be with us next week here, as we are still unable to meet personally in our place, in our congregation here in Burlington, and we have no idea when it's going to be, you know, this going to where all these restrictions will be lifted for us to meet actually personals physically at our place. So we'll continue. Please join us here next week at the same time, 2.30, for another broadcast here from Burlington. So that will take, take care of the announcements for now. Now, before we go to the main message today, by Pastor Mori Palmatier, entitled, For Conscience Sake, For Conscience Sake, by Pastor Mori Palmatier, we'll have a one more hymn. On page 189, let others see Jesus in you. 189, the words will be projected on the screen. And right after the hymn, we'll go to the main message today by Pastor Mori Palmatier, entitled, For Conscious Sake. Please enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to uh, services here. It's certainly a pleasure to be together again after another long week of making it through this world. We've made it through unscathed. To the uh, certainly as interesting times that we live in, as our brother and Deacon Jan mentioned in his introduct- introductory comments. Please welcome everyone to, uh, again for joining us here on this Sabbath day for this service. We, uh, as you have heard, we're, all, we're still locked down in this part of the country, but 
happy to be able to join with you through the technology again this Sabbath day. And we welcome everyone, uh, but especially to those who may be joining us for the first time, which I believe we uh, do have at least uh, one person, I believe, joining us for the very first time. So very much welcome to you. When I was a young teenager, I don't remember exactly how old I was. It was probably around 13 or 14. My mom was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. We were going to, uh, we had been going to the Worldwide Church of God since I was about five years old. So Sabbath keeping in this way of life was, is pretty much all I've known. Uh, we started coming before I started attending school. So that's kind of my, my recollection. But as I was becoming a young teenager, I had two younger sisters. My mom was diagnosed with a debilitating disease called multiple sclerosis. Interestingly enough, in our congregation of, if I'm thinking back, it was probably about 200 to 250 people. There were three ladies all within a couple of years span that were diagnosed with this dreaded disease called multiple sclerosis. And my mom lived out the remaining 30 plus years of her life dealing with this demyelinating disease. That's the term that it is, that is the subgroup that it, that uh, multiple sclerosis is known by, that it's called a demyelinating disease. Now, multiple sclerosis is one of many autoimmune diseases where the body, in, a, in effect, turns on itself. But in this subgroup, and Ghislaine, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but the Ghislaine-Barr syndrome is another demyelinating uh, disease. And what a demyelinating disease is, is it's any condition that results in damage to the protective sheath. That's called the, and that protective sheath around our nerves are, are, is called a myelin sheath. So it's when this myelin sheath, this protective uh, coating around our nerves, this protective covering around our nerves gets damaged. And these nerves that surround nerve fibers in our brain, our optic nerves, our spinal cord, it's when this myelin sheath is damaged, nerve pulses slow or even stop causing neurological problems. The frustration that those afflicted with this disease face is that both, interestingly enough, both the brain and the limbs and the body parts that the brain speaks to are fine. There are no physical damages to the brain itself. And for those of you who are into more medicine than I am, I might not be saying this exactly right, but uh, just bear with me. Uh, there's nothing physically wrong with the brain per se, and there's nothing physically wrong with the parts that communicates, the limbs, the hands, the legs, the arms, the feet. The problem is the damage done to the protective coverings around the nerves is damaged to the point that it blocks signals from the brain getting to those affected parts, and those affected parts don't get their instructions from the brain. So while there's nothing wrong with either the sender or the receiver of the impulses, the impulses simply are blocked from getting through. How frustrating can this be? And I watched my mom go through it for 30 years. How frustrating can this be when all of your parts are in working order, but the messages that tell your body what to do are simply blocked from going through, causing your body not to do what the brain wants it to do. We've spent the last five weeks or so addressing a tough issue that has been seeping into the body of Christ, at least up here in our neck of the woods. And, but 
a question that keeps coming back to me is how did we get here? How did we get here? It's certainly been some heavy lifting over the last five weeks, and it's time for us to move on from that topic, but move on purposefully, asking where do we go from here? Now that we've identified and addressed some of the pertinent issues that are surrounding us, and we've got, we've got so many, 2020 is, is certainly a year to remember or a year to forget. But how did we get here? How did we get to this point where we've identified some cracks in the body of Christ? Our brother made a comment to me recently that it seems like in some cases the truths that guide us simply aren't getting through, that they're somehow being blocked. That sounded quite like my mom's experience with multiple sclerosis. I'd like to begin, in, as we set the stage for this message, in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version for this particular uh, verse. Ephesians chapter 4, well-known uh, part of Scripture where Paul talks about the, the body of Christ. And I'd just like to read through verses 4 through 16, just to sort of set, set the tone here for the message this afternoon. Beginning in verse 4, Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace, referring to the body of Christ here now, they called out once, each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive, and he gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, continuing here in verse 9, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And here's where we're going to get into the crux of the matter here. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until all of us, all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to maturity. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to use this particular version as we open up here to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Paul goes on to say, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. There's two parts to there, and we can't we can't miss either one. Speaking the truth in love. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So we're starting to get this picture of the, the body as I described my mom's experience with, with multiple sclerosis, we picture the head, the brain, the head, as Jesus Christ here in verse 15. From whom, from the, the head, the brain, the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly. And where does the body get the messages? It's through the nerve system. The brain tells the body what to do through the, the neurological system. As each part is working properly, and when all of, all of these things work properly, when the brain 
is sending the signals to all the parts of the body and everything is moving in unison, it promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. There's a physiological understanding here, as well as the spiritual understanding we gain here from Ephesians chapter 4. So as part of the body of Christ, we share the same head, the same spirit. We've received the same grace to allow us to come together as one. We are come together as one and all doing our part to serve the body so that it functions as a cohesive unit, honoring and glorifying our head, Jesus the Christ. So why, and this is not necessarily or specifically referring to what we've been talking about the last five weeks, but it could be. But the over the last, and I've been coming to church, as I said, since I was five years old, so let's go back about 45 years from my experience, the body has struggled almost constantly, almost constantly, that there's some sort of issue in the body of Christ. There are times of peace. There are regional times of peace, too, where certain areas are very peaceful. We, here in the CGI, we incorporate one part of the body of Christ. But as we do, as we, we, we see the struggling of the body of Christ over the years, why is it that sometimes we do not act cohesively, that we're not all doing our part for him, that we seem to be fragmented or working in opposite directions or working contrary to each other? That's a, that's a, that's a, a painstaking truth that has affected the covenant people of God all the way back into the patriarchal times. Why does that happen? I think I have part of the answer to the question today. Maybe just another piece of insight to help us understand why this happens that I'd like to share with you today. As we begin, some of you may recall messages from some of our pastors like Vance Stinson and our own Adrian Davis that showed us how Christ and the apostles used a familiar term from Greek philosophy called logos to come to a deeper understanding of Christ's place in the Godhead as the word of God. We won't, that's not the, the purpose of the message today, but you may recall um, seeing one of their messages that uh, talked about this concept of logos and explaining it from the Greek philosophical point of view and how uh, the, the Christ and some of the, the, apostles, the apostles wrote and explained Christ's place in the Godhead through the understanding of what the Greeks termed logos. Luke, Peter, and Paul did something similar with a Greek word called uh, sunidasis. Sunidasis. If you're uh, studying Strong's, it's, you can write down 4893 in the Greek concordance, but it's sunidasis. I'd like to take a look at an, an example of how this is used. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, this Greek word sunidasis. And we're going to read verses 3 to 5 as we begin. Again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 3, Paul starts out to his, his uh, protege, Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge them that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. 
from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. We'll come back to verses 6 and 7 later in the message. But this, the verse 5 here is where I'd like to focus on, where Paul says, now the purpose of the commandment, and the commandment he was talking about, was the, the charging of Timothy to stay in Ephesus and, and uh, teach that nobody accepts doctrines outside of, tr- outside of uh, uh, the word of God. And this, this charge that Paul gave Timothy wasn't because he was on a power trip or he was, he was, he was in control of where, where the, the young ministers were sent. But it was done, he said, from a pure heart, out of love, and from a good conscience and from sincere faith. This, this combination of, of a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Conscience was a term derived by Greek philosophers developed back somewhere around the 5th century B.C. And it, as it describes how man became aware, how man becomes aware of his moral flaws. The, we know how much Greek uh, philosophy has, has influenced today's world and influenced the, the early Christian movement as, as, it, as it fell away from, from the, the apostolic writings and the teachings of Christ. But the, the Greek philosophers, as they, were, as they were trying to figure things out and they came to try to understand how man comes to a, a recognition of his moral flaws, developed this, this term, synodesis. And it comes from a, a combination of two Greek words. The, the word syn, which is recognized from synthesis, and it means together, and edo, which means knowledge. So it's the synthesizing together of knowledge. And the writers borrowed this term. The writers of the, the apostolic writings borrowed this term, much like they borrowed uh, the, the term logos, to help explain to believers how the Holy Spirit merges with our human spirit to be able to guide us in our behavioral decision-making. In essence, what makes us do what we do? So while the Greeks were looking for an explanation for our moral flaws, the writers, the apostolic writers, Luke and Paul and, and Peter, were the main ones that, that used this term. They borrowed this to help explain the fusing together, the synthesis of God's Holy Spirit with our human spirit, and that how that changes how we we our decision making process. Let's go to Romans two just for a, a uh, this passage might help explain Paul's point of view on on this term. Romans chapter two. Romans chapter two and in verse fourteen. We'll read verses fourteen through sixteen. Jumping into the context here. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. So just to, to, to pause there, mankind has some sort of moral compass. It's not always a good moral compass, and we'll come to see that. But they're, they're as part of our, our free moral agency and our ability to make choices. Something drives us in a, in a direction to make choices. And sometimes we... Man, man makes good choices because there is a sense of morality. Continuing on in verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And here's, the, here's what I wanted to focus on, and this, this conscience bearing witness. And between themselves 
their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. When he's talking about this concept of conscience, this conscience, there, it, it brings to manifest whether our thoughts accuse our own behavior or excuse our own behavior. So when we are looking for our, in our, our uh, whether we're in line with God's law, this conscience inside that works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit either accuses us of wrongdoing and helps us understand where we've dropped the ball and need to be better, or it excuses us from wrongdoing and helps us overlook our, our flaws so that we don't repent of it, that we don't feel guilty about it, that it excuses us into bad behavior. So it either accuses us or excuses us. That's this concept I'd like to look into here a little bit this afternoon. As we take a look at this concept of conscience from a biblical perspective, what I'd like to do is to take a look at how the apostolic writers used it, how it guides our behavior, both for good and bad, what a healthy conscience is, and how we can have a good conscience, and why it's important to have one. So we're going to just take a a bit of time here this afternoon to look into this concept conscience not the greek version the biblical version so as we begin here what we're going to do here in the the first little bit here is we're going to run through some of its uses here in in the in the apostolic writings and see what we can learn about conscience and we're going to begin here in first timothy one where we were first timothy one we'll go back there We read verses three. Well, we read verses three till eight to uh, eight. We're, uh, verse seven. We're gonna go back to verse five here and t- dig into this a little bit here. So the the purpose of this commandment, which we remind us is this charge to stay and ensure that others are not teaching false doctrine, is from love. Paul says to Timothy, "I'm giving you this command out of love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith." So this term good in describing this, this, this conscience, this term, this word good, it means to be intrinsically good. There's a few words in Greek that, that have been translated into English as good. This particular one means to be intrinsically good or a goodness that comes from God. The, the, the Greek word for this good is agathos and you can, you can see the root word agape in there and uh, understanding that Agape love is, is what defines God. It's what makes God who he is and defines his character. And we certainly covered that several times in other, other messages. But what Paul is saying here from a, a mature standpoint, and remember he's nearing the end of, very near the end of his life, and he's passing on some concerns and some, some encouragement to his protege Timothy on how to continue guiding the, the body of Christ here. And he's saying from this, this long-term mature standpoint as he's nearing the end of his life, this command that he's given him to stay and guide the, guide the church away from false doctrine, it comes from a combination of a pure heart and an intrinsically good or, or, or this goodness that comes from God, a conscience. So as we're trying to determine this, this moral compass, Paul's moral compass at the end of his life, from, from his perspective, is intrinsically good. It, 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 it comes from God. It has, it has an, an agape-like quality to it. 
And he combines that with his sincere faith. And he's acknowledging his maturity in the faith. And that this type of conscience, this pure, intrinsically good, a, 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 a very mature conscience, is part of the perfecting process. Part of the perfecting process. Continuing in verse 8, uh, we won't get tied up too much in verse 8 and 9, but just for context sake. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites and for kidnappers, for liars and for perjurers. So we're seeing this behavior, this, this, this acknowledging that the law is there and that many violate the law. And continuing in verse 10, if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So we're starting to see here again behavior being manifest in, in conjunction with doctrine. So doctrine guides our belief system. Our belief system guides our behavior. And how we act is a clear indication of where we are in our mind from, from a, a concept or terms of uh, being a, a follower of the law, not a perfect follower of the law, but an upright moral person who, who values God's law versus someone who doesn't value God's law. Finishing off this passage here, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So we see here that Paul gives us some quick insight into this, this term of conscience as to where it comes from and what guides us. And what guides it, what guides the conscience is sound doctrine. More on that a little bit later, but that's important, important to, to grasp. That this, this synthesizer of what, what brings together our human spirit and the Holy Spirit and allows the Holy Spirit to transform our, our human spirit so that we become more like Jesus Christ is all driven off of our faith and, and adherence to sound doctrine and truth. Let's go to Titus chapter one. Titus chapter one. Paul's other protege that he wrote to near the end of his life. Titus. So Titus chapter one, verses 15 through 16. And again, we don't have time to get too deep into the context here, but, but here, um, we'll go back to verse 10. We'll take a little bit of time here as he's, as he's, uh, helping Titus understand how, how to build a healthy church. And he starts out with, with, uh, is encouragement to institute qualified leaders to help guide uh, mature and qualified leaders to help guide the congregation. The reason for that is, he begins in verse 10, there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. And this was something that was pervasive in the New Testament church uh, as they got further and further away from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And that's, that, was, that was the point here that Paul was trying to get to. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Now, the focus here in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. 
we see here, we just left Timothy that talked about a good, intrinsically good, godlike conscience. We see here that conscience can also be defiled. This word defiled means stained and polluted. And again, as we recall that conscience is what synthesizes the mind with the Holy Spirit. When conscience is defiled, the mind becomes defiled. And that's what he says here. Even there in verse 15, even their mind and conscience are defiled. The mind becomes defiled. And this is made manifest in their behavior, their works, which we see point, uh, Paul here pointing out to Titus that it is this is misguided conscience that affects the mind that then leads to irresponsible behavior. The Holy Spirit, representing Jesus Christ, Christ in us, knows what to do. But there are blockers, much like we talked about multiple sclerosis and these demyelinating diseases. The Holy Spirit knows what to do. It wants to guide us properly. But there are blockers that prevent his instructions from reaching some of the body parts. Hebrews 13, we'll go on to another example here. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Coming to the end of his, of Paul's uh, letter to uh, the Hebrews. As he concludes verse 18, he says, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience and all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. This, I mentioned to you earlier that there are various words for good that are translated uh, into good from the, from the Greek scriptures, from the apostolic writings. This is a different good than what we read back in Timothy. Some translations refer to this as a clear conscience, a good conscience or, or, or a clear conscience. This Greek word is kalos, K-A-L-O-S, and it means outwardly beautiful or an outward sign of inward character. Note again here as we read this, for we are confident that we have a good conscience, that, that our conscience, the, the manifestation of our behavior is because our conscience denotes inward godly character. And in all things desiring to live honorably. So this, this clear conscience, this callous conscience, this good conscience drives our desire, Paul's desire here is in his writing, to live an honorable life. So again, conscience fusing the Holy Spirit with the human, the human spirit, allowing as long as it's based off of truth and doctrine, the Holy Spirit to transform the human spirit, have it become more and more like Jesus Christ, so that our lives are honorable lives, and we glorify and honor God and Jesus Christ through that. Let's go back to First Timothy. Back to First Timothy. Chapter 3. As, as Paul continues to go through his, his letter to Timothy about how to, to um, manage and set up healthy congregations, we come now to the, the anointing, setting apart ordination of, of leaders, elders and deacons. We're going to look at verse 8 and 9 here as we look at the qualifications of deacons. And verse 8 says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, 
not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So we've seen good conscience used in two different ways. The intrinsically good, the mature godlike conscience. We've seen a defiled conscience. We've seen uh, an outwardly beautiful conscience, a, a conscience that that because of its outward beauty that it that it manifests in, in the behavior reveals an inward beauty within the, the, the carrier. Here now we see a pure conscience. And that's one of the prerequisites for someone who wants to serve in the diaconate. And this word pure is the word katharos, and it means clean and unstained. Almost the exact opposite what we what we read about when we talked about defiled, where it was stained and polluted. Here, a pure conscience is one that is clean and unstained. And its root word, actually, interestingly enough, means unmixed. The, the root Greek word within that means to be unmixed. So to be completely pure, not mixed, not one foot in, the, not one foot here and one foot there, trying to play both sides. But, but this, this type of conscience, this pure conscience is one that is unmixed. It is, it is the definition of, of purity. And here's where we start to see that this conscience that is being described here for us is really our moral compass. It really is our moral compass. What drives our behavior? What allows when God puts his Holy Spirit within us and combines it with our human spirit, what allows that Holy Spirit to take root and to take control and to drive that behavior and to change our uh, the old man into the new man and to put out some of our, ter- our, our old habits and to take on the character of Jesus Christ? That's what we're starting to see here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. See another type of conscience that is described for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And again, we don't have time to dig too much into context here. So we're going to come into this right at verse 7. But this was... Uh, if you go back to verse one, this this really is talking about um, um, meat being offered to idols, and how some would some are okay with eating it, some are not okay with, with eating the offered to idols. Something we really don't understand today. It's not really an issue today, but it was back then. So verse seven says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food doesn't commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. As we consider here, that this issue here was that this food that was offered to idols became an issue. Could, could, could the people of God eat it, or couldn't they eat it? Well, as Paul continues, and we, we see what Paul says there, it, it really was just food. So it really wasn't, wasn't a big deal. But to some who have a weak conscience, and that's that's what I wanted to, to look at there. There are some who are weak in their maturity, maybe not as far along as others. So as as the as the Holy Spirit combines with our human spirit and, and and we understand how conscience plays a role here, sometimes our conscience is weak and not as fully developed as it's going to be the the further along we come in our journey with God. 
The context here, as I said, is the partaking of food offered to idols. And again, it's not really an issue that we, we have today, but to, to help explain it, some who were weak in the faith avoided partaking of what was good food because it had been used in idol worship by others. Paul here, a more mature believer, and that's just from experience, had no issue because the idols really meant nothing to him. So they were merely wooden structures of no value, and it was just food. However, some are weak in maturity, lacking the necessary resources, as I believe we read, or without strength. Their moral compasses may be weak in some areas. We find that today in in brothers and sisters who are overcoming addictions. There's nothing, I'll give you an example. There's nothing wrong with the consumption of alcohol in moderation. Paul told Timothy that, you know, it's have a glass of wine once in a while. It, it, it's good for the stomach. So there's nothing wrong with the consumption of alcohol. But if a brother or sister is weak in a certain area, like overcoming an addiction to alcohol, we may be putting them in harm's way by consuming it in their presence. It's not wrong to consume alcohol, but out of love for our brother or our sister, who may have a weak conscience when it comes to this, it does make a difference. So again, our behavior would be manifest by our conscience. Is our conscience in tune, out of love, out of faith, out of, out of a pure spirit, to love our brother or our sister? And therefore, while it may seem immature to us, having a love for that person, that we're going to ensure that we don't put a stumbling block in their way. So the presence of weak consciences drives the behavior of the strong, too, when we act out of love for our brethren. And we see here, Paul kind of explains that. We'll continue on in verse 9. But beware, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. We could be putting our our brother or sister in harm's way by not being sensitive to their weak conscience. Continuing verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And again, I don't, I don't personally don't think Paul is saying he'd never eat meat. What he's saying is I would never eat meat in front of my brother so that I don't make him stumble. And Paul here explains how to lovingly deal with brethren who have weak consciences. So, so far, we've seen intrinsically good conscience. We've seen defiled conscience. We've seen clear conscience or outwardly beautiful conscience. We've seen a pure, unspotted, uh, unmixed conscience, and we've seen weak or immature conscience. Hopefully we can start to see now how our conscience really is that moral compass within that guides our behavior and guides it for the good when we allow God's Holy Spirit, as I said, to merge with our human spirit and bring about real change within us. What we read about back in Romans 12, we don't want to take time to turn there, but to be transformed, to become, uh, as Philippians 3 says, or Philippians 2 to become, to put on the mind of Jesus Christ. We also see, as we've seen through the various descriptions of of various types of consciences, that there is a maturing process. 
that some are just naturally weak and have not matured to a level of strength. Some may be naturally weak in certain areas. We all, we all have things that we're overcoming. Uh, we have, none of us have reached the level of, of teleos or perfection or completion yet. Others have defiled consciences, moral compasses that are not solely founded on God's law. Let's look at one more before we change, we go a little, we take a different uh, road here. Let's look at one more. First Timothy chapter four. First Timothy chapter four. Verses one through three. First Timothy four verse one. Now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Having their consciences seared with a hot iron. Let's unpack that just a little bit here. This is when we come to a very dangerous point in our spiritual lives. When our consciences have been seared with a hot iron. This, this phrase, seared with a hot iron, is actually a single Greek word. And as, as we come to understand the Greek language, it's, 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 it's very robust is the word I've heard used before. It's very descriptive. And this one word, and it's a cauterizo, cauterizo, 2743 in Strong's, is what is used to, to, in English, to be translated into seared with a hot iron. Do you recognize that, the, any English words in there when we hear the word cauterizo? You may understand the English word cauterized, to be cauterized. That's where we get that. That's where we get that term. And this to be seared with a hot iron, is to be branded to the point where nerve endings are damaged. Let's go back and recall what we read in Ephesians 4 and the introduction where we talked about these demyelinating diseases like multiple sclerosis. When our consciences are seared like a hot iron to the point where nerve endings are damaged, here this is referring to the destruction of our spiritual nerve endings. Destruction of our spiritual nerve endings. Let's reread this again and see how our behavior is affected by moral compasses that have been burned beyond the ability to be affected by God's Holy Spirit. When, when our spiritual, when our nerve endings have been seared, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing there anymore. I, when I was in my early twenties, I had some knee surgery done. I had torn some cartilage playing hockey. And for after that, uh, what was a routine surgery, routine arthroscopic surgery on my left knee, something happened to some nerves down on my leg where I've got a spot on my left thigh about the size of a couple of grapefruits that is completely dead. Um, the, the For whatever reason, I don't know whether it was through a cauterization process or I don't know, I'm not medical enough to know exactly how it happened, but following that surgery, there's a dead spot on my left thigh. That's the same type of concept that we were thinking about here. But think of it spiritually when as the, the head Jesus Christ that we talked about and we read in Ephesians four 
sends all of these instructions through the spiritual nerve cells down into all the body parts that are so woven and fused together fitly, exactly how God intended. But there are nerve damages. There are nerve endings that are seared in parts of the body so that the instructions don't get through. The body doesn't do, that part of the body won't do what the head wants it to do because it's simply not getting the message. So let's read this again and see how behavior is affected by moral compasses that have been burned, whose nerve endings have been burned beyond the ability to be affected by God's Holy Spirit. Let's read this again. And think of that MS patient we were talking about, whose whose body parts don't receive the messages from the brain. The Spirit, verse 1, expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So they'll give heed to deception. They won't recognize deception. The Christ, the head, has uh, certain warnings that, that he can send out through the spiritual nerve cells because we read scripture, because we're tuned into truth, that when we see something, if, if our nerve endings are, are sensitive and not seared, we'll pick it up and we'll say, hey, that's not right. But here, they give heed to deceiving spirits and, and, and false doctrine, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared, forbidding to marry, com- uh, speaking in hypocrisy, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thankful thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So when our nerve endings are seared so that we are not receiving the messages from the spiritual head, Christ, through his Holy Spirit, we give heed to deception. We accept false doctrine. We speak lies to brethren. We act hypocritically. And where, where we have opportunity, we teach falsehood as if they were biblical truths. Right here from the Apostle Paul. So we've covered intrinsically good conscience. We've covered weak conscience. We've covered defiled conscience. We've covered uh, outward, outwardly beautiful conscience, consciences. And here we've covered consciences that are seared with a hot iron so that the nerve endings are useless. The nerve endings are useless. They simply don't pick up anything anymore. When the body of Christ is not acting in unison. How do we get here? We've, those of you who've been around for any number of years can look back on your experience in the, in, in the church, in the body of Christ, and see times where the body simply wasn't acting the way God tells us, the way Paul, God through Paul told us it should act in Ephesians 4. Everything all perfectly situated, God puts us all in a spot in his body where he wants us to be. We're all interconnected and the, the, the spirit that flows from, from the head Jesus Christ is, is feeding the body uh, appropriately. So that the, and then the body is working to, to make sure it's doing its part. So all the parts uh, circulate and, and the Holy Spirit is circulating in the body and everything is unified. That's not always the case. So how do we get there? How does the body get to the, a point where it can, it's weak, it, it's defiled, or it's seared. Its consciences are seared like a hot iron. Let's go to First Timothy two. First Timothy one. We were already here today. Already here today. But let's look at it again. 
with this deeper understanding of what conscience is. And let's read this again. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version again. We're going to read verses 3 through 11. Let's just read here what Paul says to Timothy about this. Verse 3, I urge you, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than divine training that is known by faith. But the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Some people have deviated from these. Some people have deviated from these and turned to meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law. Read how, read how this, this in, interprets what Paul says. Without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making assertions. That's powerful. That's powerfully worded. Deviated from truth. Some have. Desiring to teach and absolutely not understanding what they're talking about or having any understanding of anything that they're saying. Continuing on in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law is not laid down for the innocent, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. When we allow something other than the word of God to influence our moral compass, we set ourselves up to be disconnected from the head of the body of Christ, and we are inflicted with spiritual MS or a spiritual demyelinating disease where the messages from the head simply aren't getting to some of the parts. Further on, in same chapter, verse 18 and 19, again from the New Revised Standard Version, Paul says to Timothy, I'm giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, by rejecting a good conscience, by rejecting that conscience that is intrinsically good, this mature conscience, this agathos that is that is a clear indication of our maturity in the walk, by rejecting that type of conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. This is the concern for the ministry. This is where we must be concerned. And you must be concerned about me. We, we, this is where the body of Christ keeps an eye on each other. And if we are in tune, if, if, if our conscience is good, we're not perfect people. Nobody is. But we need to be tuned, attuned to when the, the, the head is trying to get a message down into a part. And if we're that part, we need to be hearing that message so that we may be bettering ourselves, becoming more like Jesus Christ, putting on his mind. 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. 
verse 6. Continuing here, answering this question, how do we get here? How, how do we get to this spot where things aren't quite working right? Verse 6, 1 Timothy 4. If you instruct the brethren in these things, and go back to re, just glance up to verses 1 through through 5, which we read for the most part about uh, that the consciences that are seared with a hot iron, that and then it gives way to, to absolutely abhorrent behavior in the body of Christ. If you instruct the brethren in these things, warning them, watching, making sure that they, they that we that we take care of and protect them, he's saying to Timothy, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, but reject, reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, we can live a peaceful, good life now. But more, even more important than that, is the life that is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor, referring to himself and Timothy as as fellow ministers in Christ, We both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. These things command and teach. Paul is telling Timothy, love the brethren so much that you will stand up and protect them and call things out when you see it. Because our love is for God in his way. That that is where we all owe our allegiance to. And sometimes that means suffering a little bit of reproach. Paul here is clearly worried about the infiltration of the body of Christ with worldly influences. And in his letters to Timothy, he continues to encourage him to watch for this, to call it out, so that the body of Christ can be protected. Because we are all in a state of growth, on the path to being complete, on the path to being made into the image of Jesus Christ. We're all thus naturally weak in some areas. That's just a fact. The adversary looks for these weak spots and seeks to derail us. Let's continue here, verses 12 to 16, here in verse 74. Let no one despise your youth, but his instruction to Timothy, be an example to the believers in word. Everything you say may be an example to those who are, are, are following. Be an example in your word. Be an example in your conduct. May the, may the two match. May what you say and what you do look the same. Not, not hypocritical as he covered earlier in the chapter. May you be an example in love. True love for the brethren in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. To reading the word of God. To being exhorted by it. To, 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 to having, having it called out for us. So where we have weak spots, maybe that's where we need to put some attention to. And to doctrine. Making sure we understand what truth is. That we can't be derailed by false truth, by false doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the elders. Meditate on these things and give yourself entirely to them, 
that your progress may be evident in all. As, as a leader, part of, part of the, the expectation of a leader is to lead by example. So not just to come before you and speak, but when you see our behaviors, that they are, they, they match up with what we've been saying, that what we say is from the word of God and what we do is from the word of God. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this, you will both save yourself and those who hear you. Our belief system, that which guides our conscience, is made manifest in our actions. And then finishing up here, this, this part here in Timothy, let's go to his very last two verses, his, his closing remarks in his first letter to Timothy. Chapter 6, verse 20. First Timothy 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, this is, this is how important this was to Paul. He starts out at the beginning in the first part of his letter. He covers it throughout his, his letter, and then he finishes with this. This is how concerned he was about weak spots in the faith and, and, and issues that would be coming to derail the body of Christ. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings. Again, he says this, and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Falsely called knowledge. There's only one truth. There can't be, recall that uh, uh, some award show from several years back, Oprah uh, Winfrey getting up and talking about my truth and your truth. Paul here is saying, guard against this, what people falsely call knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. That was his concern. We look through that first letter to Timothy. That's why he charged him with so many things, because of his love for the body of Christ. And he could see things on the horizon and see things percolating and brewing in, in the, the church in, in uh, Ephesus, which was where he left Timothy. Let's, take, let's go back to the book of Judges. For those of you who are following in the, the study, uh, the Wednesday study, as our brother and Deacon Jan mentioned in the announcements, you'll recall this, but let's go back to the book of Judges and see some of this conscience in action. Just have, have a look here at uh, something we've been studying in the recent Wednesday night Bible studies. Let's go back to the book of Judges. Judges 21 and verse 25, the very last verse in this book. Judges 21 and verse 25. And this is a profound statement that the writer of the book of Judges closes out with. And Quite frankly, and we haven't got to most of the places yet. It comes a little further later along. But this phrase is repeated many, many times throughout the book. And it's this phrase here in verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a profound verse that describes this entire book and this entire few centuries in the history of God's covenant people. And the profundity is this. And it was something I, I didn't quite understand until we started to go through the Bible study here. They actually believe they are doing right. God's covenant people here in their sins actually believe they are doing right in the eyes of God. This wasn't just they know they're being evil and they don't care. They, they actually believed what they were doing was right. And this Hebrew word for right actually means upright and straight. The amazing part here, and we love to look back, 
and look back at the children of Israel and God's people in the time of the judges and God's people during the times of the prophets and go, oh boy, I can't believe they were like that. Uh, I wouldn't have been like that back then, really. Mankind has always been this way. God's covenant people have always been this way. What we see here, they actually thought they were doing right. They didn't weren't purposely doing evil, knowing they were evil, and didn't care. They actually thought they were doing right. And then he adds this part here, that there was no king in Israel. God works through mature leadership, as we've seen throughout the what we've seen here today, through Paul and Timothy and Titus and, and the others, to keep his covenant people on the right path. And when he says there was no king, he's not talking about any king. He's talking about kings that acted according to Torah, according to the way God laid down through Moses what a godly king should be. And if you want to look at that, you go back to Deuteronomy 17 and the last half of that chapter, we don't have time today, for God's expectations of leaders. But what he's saying here, there was no godly leader. There were many saviors, as we've seen, but they were flawed. But there were no righteous kings leading God's people. And as such, everyone thought they were doing right. Despite the evil they were doing, they thought they were doing right. That's where the moral compass is off. That's where without leadership, helping to guide, helping to to be a watchman, that's where the body of Christ is sometimes go astray. Let's go to Judges 9. There's an interesting passage here that was covered that may, that I understand a, a little more now, having come through the studies, and then even more so now through this, this understanding of this term of conscience. And it's a warning here, Judges chapter 9, about analyzing where we obtain our moral direction. And again, you'll recognize this if you've, if you've uh, caught any of the most recent Wednesday studies, but it helps explain the role conscience plays. As we jump into we're going to read verses 16 through 21. But just to sort of remind remind you where we're at and set a little bit of the setting, Abimelech, one of the many sons of Gideon, who had since died, conspired to gain the support of the people of Shechem. And you recall he was he was a product of of a of a, a, a I think it was a concubine relationship with Gideon's. Gideon had seventy sons um, um, back in in uh, uh, another part of Israel. But over in another part, he had, he had a, um, a relationship with a concubine, and it produced this son, Abimelech. And after Gideon died, who was going to take over uh, for, which, which one of the sons would take over for, for Gideon and lead the people? Well, Abimelech conspired to gain the support of the people of Shechem in usurping control following the death of his father, Gideon. And the people of Shechem, through their support behind him, Despite his evil intentions, he was clearly very evil. He clearly had 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 um, all the wrong intentions. But the people of Shechem fell victim to, to his to his uh, conniving, and they supported him. Let's look at what uh, is said here in verse sixteen. Now, therefore, speaking to the people of Shechem. If you have acted in truth and sincerity, that's a that's a an interesting term 
Moses talked about sincerity and truth. Paul talks about sincerity and truth in relation to unleavened bread. If you have acted in truth and sincerity out of, out of a proper conscience in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubal and his house, or Gideon and his house, and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day, and this is the, the 70th son that, that uh, escaped death, that is speaking here, and killed his 70 sons on, on one stone, and made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come down from Abimelech, and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come down from the men of Shechem and from Bethnilo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. What is being said here, and what we heard in this in Wednesday studies, and now let's look at it again here through this this concept of conscience. If what is being as he says here to the people of Shechem, if you have faithfully and judiciously studied where you are seeking your moral guidance, this truth and sincerity. And from a pure heart, you did so in sincerity and in truth. And you threw your support behind Abimelech because you did all your research and you checked all your facts and you checked all your history. And based off of a pure, true and sincere moral compass with a heart for God and for a heart for all that he stands for and expects of us. If you did all of that work, then let this work out good for you. May we rejoice and may this work out well. But if you didn't, if you didn't evaluate your moral influences thoroughly enough through the source of sincerity and truth, through God's word, through his Torah, through all that guides us, if you took the easy way out, if you got caught up in supporting Abimelech because it was easy or because you wanted to join, join, uh, jump on the bandwagon, And join him. If you did it for that reason, then be careful. You're on precarious ground. Because if it doesn't, if, if he hurts God's people and you supported that without doing all your, all your research, without doing it a good conscience, full moral conscience, clearing everything that, that, that you've read through, through good study of truth and sincerity, then you're responsible too, is what he says to the people who should come. That's how conscience plays a role. Why we've got good conscience, weak consciences, defiled consciences, pure consciences. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul helped to explain this concept here. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So as you're trying to process what I do, there are some things that are lawful, but not helpful. And there are some things that are lawful, but they don't edify. And whatever you do, make sure you're not seeking your own well-being. But make sure you're seeking the well-being 
of others, that you're worried about the well-being of the body of Christ. Just because you can, and this is the concept Paul is trying to is trying to get across here, just because you can doesn't mean you should. A pure, clean, good conscience, one of those that is godly driven, a godly driven moral compass, guides our behavioral choices. And it does so out of love for the body of Christ. And that's what drives us, is love for the body of Christ. That's what becomes our go-to. And we see here, we can continue down. We don't have time to keep it, but finish the rest of the chapter. Uh, verse 27, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is before you, asking no question for conscience sake. And again, we're not talking about, about something that contradicts God's law, because that's, that's, again, we've made that very clear. Paul has made that very clear. But we go back to God's law that guides all that we do. But again, he's talking here about conscience sake. That what guides our moral, our moral, um, um, our moral compass must be a love for the brethren. Not, not seeking our own. And just because you can, just because it's legal, just because you're not going to get in trouble for it, doesn't necessarily mean it's helpful, edifying, and appropriate. I'm just getting my head around now this this biblical concept of conscience, and it really drove off of that conversation about things being how are, how 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 does the body of Christ act in different ways, and then linking that to my mother's experience with multiple sclerosis. And this Greek term that the apostles used to help convey the under this understanding of a moral compass, the synthesizing of our spirit with the spirit of God, so that then God's spirit can help transform us. Into, uh, into what he wants us to be, the image of Jesus Christ. It's critical for us to grasp this concept of conscience if we are to put on the mind of Christ. I'd like to close here with a few scriptures um, on why a healthy, pure, clear conscience is important to the health of the body of Christ. Now, all of this guides our behavior, but is driven off of a clear understanding of God's expectations as he set out in his law and as he has has confirmed throughout his word. Let's go to 1 John 3. 1 John 3. 1 John 3, verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We talked about, Paul talked earlier about hypocrisy. What you say must be what's inside, and all of that must match up with what we do. And by this, we know that we are of the truth, and we shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If our conscience is tuned in and realizes I'm going the wrong way. And it condemns us. Remember, we, we read back in Romans, it either accuses us or excuses us. We want our conscience to accuse us because God is greater than our heart, because he can forgive. When we realize we're going astray and our conscience accuses us, that's when God can work with us. That's when we realize we're not where we need to be yet. And that's a great thing. Because God wants us to be better. Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, 
we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we'll receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So we're seeing how conscience plays a role here in our development. Let's go to 1 Peter 3. Because this is a concept that the apostles understood. Because they understood this, this Greek philosophy that had been around for 500 years. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? So if you do what is right, you may get harmed on the outside. But like John says, God is there and will protect. God will look after you. If you should suffer for his righteousness sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. We often pull that out, and it's a nice sounding, it's a nice sounding verse. But when we read it in context, it actually is talking about our reaction when in persecution and where our mind needs to be and that we're not to be afraid when we're when we are being persecuted whether without or within we tell the truth we do it out of love we do it out of concern for the body but we tell the truth having a verse 16 having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers those who revile your good conduct in christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And we can make lots of comments there. We won't have, we don't have time. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. We'll finish up with a couple of, a couple of uh, accounts here in 2 Corinthians. Let's read what uh, Brother Daniel read in the scripture reading. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. For our boasting is this. That's 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Our boasting is this. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. What do we boast in? If there's anything that we can boast, it is that God guides our conscience. And when the Holy Spirit helps transform our human spirit to become like Jesus Christ, and we become an example of, of simplicity and godly sincerity, and our actions reflect that, that's when we can boast because it is God who's getting the glory. It's God who's getting the glory, not with fleshly wisdom, not being, not have, not having our human mind take over and having our conscience succumbing to worldly influence that we've read about too many times today, several times today, not with godly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read, what you read and understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as you also understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of Jesus Christ. Let's not boast about ourselves. Let's boast about each other. You want a great example? I've got lots of examples I can point you to. Lots of brothers and sisters in the faith that I look up to. because. Their conscience has allowed God's Holy Spirit to transform them. And these might not be folks that you know, folks that, that you see on, on giving messages, although some are. 
but there are quiet people. Quiet people. I can boast about that. I go, you might. That is a pillar of God. That is a pillar of faith. You want a good example? Here, look over here at, the, at this sister. Look over here at this brother. And we hope that they that they could do the same for us. Let's finish up in Second Corinthians four. Second Corinthians four, last scripture. And again, I'm going to read this as we close from the New Revised Standard Version. Second Corinthians four, verses one through six. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we don't lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. Recall what we've read earlier today about weak, defiled consciences, consciences that, consciences that have been seared by a hot iron. We refuse God's true people. The, the, those that have a good agathos conscience or that have a pure conscience or those that have a, a outwardly beautiful conscience because it sh- it, it, it's manifesting the character that God is developing with, within you. We refuse, refuse to practice cunning. We refuse to falsify God's word. I'm not going to misapply God's word because it makes me feel good. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. I'm an open book. May all that I say and do reflect God. And if not, please tell me. But use the Bible as your guide so that we can help each other work towards becoming made in the image of Jesus Christ. And even if our gospel is failed, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. God has blinded, Satan has blinded these people. God has allowed it, but Satan has blinded them. Why would we, why would we follow that? Why would we try to incorporate that into the church? We're going to come into that here, into the body of Christ. We're going to come to that. That's going to get explained for us a little bit more here in a couple of verses. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves. It's not about me. It's not about you. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as slave for Jesus' sake. But it's not enough that we simply say Jesus is Lord. Our actions, how we treat each other, how we view the truth, they must also be in line. Otherwise, that's rhetoric. And really, Jesus Christ isn't our Lord. If our actions and our belief system and how we treat each other don't line up with what Christ expects, those are just words. And our, our behavior doesn't manifest that. For it is Verse 6, for it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. One of the missions of the body of Christ is to shine light into darkness. Knowing the difference between light and darkness is important. Lest, and hear what I'm going to say, lest we end up shining darkness into light. And you don't want to do that. Shine light into darkness. Don't shine darkness into light. For conscience sake, please know the difference. Please know the difference. 
Don't be the cause of a blockage in the body of Christ that prevents instructions of the head from reaching the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Wow. What a great message, Pastor Murray. I wish that they'll take the time and effort just to maybe listen it again as will be posted, will be recorded over there, as we really take it to our hearts. It's such an important message, and I would say it's such an important conclusion to all these messages that we've actually heard over the last number of weeks. And we as believers, we have to make sure that we don't guide our actions by our emotions. We have to make sure that our conscience is pure, it's good, and it's aligned perfectly with the commandment with the word of God. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Murray, for your such a hard work and dedication, and also Pastor Agent, providing all this technology and also speaking in this difficult time and providing such a difficult messages. But they're very vital and very important to the church. As Pastor Murray said, it, if our members, individual members, don't work properly, Blocking the message that's coming from the head will have a very difficult, difficult to operate in this difficult environment to love one another. So thank you one more time. Thank you to all of you who faithful, faithfully visit us each week. And at this time, let's just pray together and conclude this service. So let's bow your heads. Loving God and loving Father. What a great message we received today. And Father, first I just want to ask that you forgive my inability to express my gratitude in my words for the message that I hear today. How important it is for all of us. Let us work together as a body of Christ, holding one another accountable by higher standard, raising our consciences way over the top, making sure that whatever we do, whatever we think, whatever we say, whatever we do in this society, in this world, will reflect our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our head. And we sign the agreement, we sign the covenant that will be obedient to the death. Father, thank you. Thank you for carrying us through another week. Thank you for giving us this another Sabbath, another chance, another opportunity to get our lives together. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for being merciful. And Father, as we say goodbye, I know that you're going to watch over us. You're going to take care of people who may be suffering at this time. 
And we know how much you love us. And we know how much Jesus Christ loves us too. So, Father, we thank you for all these beautiful messages, hard messages, all the service of your ministry. We praise you, holy name, and we ask you, Father, all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So now, brethren, we'll conclude. We'll have a one closing hymn. And again, please turn to page 99, and the word will be projected on the screen. Let's sing together these beautiful words. It is well with my soul. And see you all here back next week at 2.30. May God bless you all. Love you all.